Section 59 of L'Assommoir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. L'Assommoir by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Chapter 13. That night, Coupeau went on a spree. Next day, Gervaise received ten francs from her son, Etienne, who was a mechanic on some railway. The youngster sent her a few francs from time to time, knowing that they were not very well off at home. She made some soup and ate it all alone, for that scoundrel Coupeau did not return on the morrow. On Monday he was still absent, and on Tuesday also. The whole week went by. Ah, it would be good luck if some woman took him in. On Sunday, Gervaise received a printed document. It was to inform her that her husband was dying at the Sainte Anne Asylum. Gervaise did not disturb herself. He knew the way. He could very well get home from the asylum by himself. They had cured him there so often that they could once more do him the sorry service of putting him on his pins again. Had she not heard that very morning that for the week before Coupeau had been seen as round as a ball, rolling about Belleville from one dram shop to another in the company of my boots, exactly so. And it was my boots, too, who stood treat. He must have hooked his missus's stockings with all the savings gained at very hard work. It wasn't clean money that they used, but money that they could infect with any manner of vile diseases. Well, anyway... They hadn't thought to invite her for a drink. If you wanted to drink by yourself, you could croak by yourself. However, on Monday, as Gervaise had a nice little meal planned for the evening, the remains of some beans and a pint of wine, she pretended to herself that a walk would give her an appetite. The letter from the asylum which she had left lying on the bureau bothered her. The snow had melted, the day was mild and grey, and on the whole fine with just a slight keenness in the air which was invigorating. She started at noon, for her walk was a long one. She had to cross Paris, and her bad leg always slowed her. With that the streets were crowded, but the people amused her. She reached her destination very pleasantly. When she had given her name, she was told a most astounding story to the effect that Coupeau had been fished out of the Seine, close to the Pont Neuf. He had jumped over the parapet under the impression that a bearded man was barring his way. A fine jump, was it not? And as for finding out how Coupeau got to be on the Pont Neuf, that was a matter he could not even explain himself. One of the keepers escorted Gervaise. She was ascending a staircase when she heard howlings which made her shiver to her very bones. Oh, he's playing a nice music, isn't he? observed the keeper. "'Who is?' asked she. "'Why, your old man. "'He's been yelling like that ever since the day before yesterday, "'and he dances. "'You'll just see.' "'Oh, mon Dieu, what a sight! "'She stood as one transfixed. "'The cell was padded from the floor to the ceiling. "'On the floor there were two straw mats, "'one piled on top of the other, "'and in a corner were spread a mattress and a bolster, "'nothing more.' Inside there, Coupeau was dancing and yelling, his blouse in tatters and his limbs beating the air. He wore the mask of one about to die. 
What a breakdown! He bumped up against the window, then retired backwards, beating time with his arms and shaking his hands as though he were trying to wrench them off and fling them in somebody's face. One meets with buffoons in low dancing places who imitate the delirium tremor, only they imitated badly. One must see this drunkard's dance if one wishes to know what it is like when gone through in earnest. The song also has its merits, a continuous yell worthy of carnival time, a mouth wide open uttering the same hoarse trombone notes for hours together. Coupeau had the howl of a beast with a crushed paw. Strike up music, gentlemen, choose your partners. Oh, mon Dieu, what is the matter with him? What is the matter with him? repeated Gervaise, seized with fear. A house surgeon, a big fair fellow with a rosy countenance and wearing a white apron, was quietly sitting taking notes. The case was a curious one. The doctor did not leave the patient. "'Stay a while, if you like,' said he to the laundress, "'but keep quiet. Try and speak to him. He will not recognize you.' Coupeau, indeed, did not even appear to see his wife. She had only had a bad view of him on entering. He was wriggling about so much. When she looked him full in the face, she stood aghast. Oh, mon Dieu! Was it possible he had a countenance like that, his eyes full of blood and his lips covered with scabs? She would certainly never have known him. To begin with, he was making too many grimaces without saying why, his mouth suddenly out of all shape, his nose curled up, his cheeks drawn in a perfect animal's muzzle. His skin was so hot the air steamed around him, and his hide was as though varnished, covered with a heavy sweat which trickled off him. In his mad dance, one could see all the same that he was not at his ease. His head was heavy and his limbs ached. Gervaise drew near to the house-surgeon, who was strumming a tune with the tips of his fingers on the back of his chair. "'Tell me, sir, it's serious, then, this time?' The house-surgeon nodded his head without answering. "'Isn't he jabbering to himself, eh? Don't you hear? What's it about?' "'About things he sees,' murmured the young man. "'Keep quiet. Let me listen.' Coupeau was speaking in a jerky voice. A glimmer of amusement lit up his eyes. He looked on the floor, to the right, to the left, and turned about as though he had been strolling in the Bois de Vincennes, conversing with himself. Ah, oh, that's nice, that's grand. There's cottages, a regular fare, and some jolly fine music. Ah, oh, what a Balthazar's feast! They're smashing the crockery in there, awfully swell. Now it's being lit up, red balls in the air, and it jumps and it flies. Oh, oh, what a lot of lanterns in the trees. It's confoundedly pleasant. There's water flowing everywhere, fountains, cascades, water which sings, oh, with the voice of a chorister. The cascades are grand. And he drew himself up as though the better to hear the delicious song of the water. He sucked in forcibly, fancying he was drinking the fresh spray blown from the fountains. But little by little his face resumed an agonized expression. Then he crouched down and flew quicker than ever around the walls of the cell, uttering vague threats. More traps, all that. I thought as much. Silence, you said, of swindlers. Yes, you're making a fool of me. It's for that that you're drinking and bawling inside there with your vigoros. I'll demolish you, you and your cottage damnation. Will you leave me in peace? 
He clenched his fists. Then he uttered a hoarse cry, stooping as he ran, and he stuttered, his teeth chattering with fright. It's so that I may kill myself. No, I won't throw myself in. All that water means that I've no heart. No, I won't throw myself in. The cascades, which fled at his approach, advanced when he retired, and all of a sudden he looked stupidly around him, mumbling in a voice which was scarcely audible. It isn't possible. They set conjurers against me. I'm off, sir. I've got to go. Good night, said Gervaise to the house surgeon. It upsets me too much. I'll come again. She was quite white. Coupeau was continuing his breakdown from the window to the mattress and from the mattress to the window, perspiring, toiling, always beating the same rhythm. Then she hurried away, but though she scrambled down the stairs, she still heard her husband's confounded jig until she reached the bottom. Oh, mon Dieu, how pleasant it was out of doors. One could breathe there. That evening everyone in the tenement was discussing Coupeau's strange malady, the Bosch invited Gervaise to have a drink with them, even though they now considered Clump Clump beneath them, in order to hear all the details. Madame Laurier and Madame Poisson were there also. Bosch told of a carpenter he had known, who had been a drinker of absinthe. The man shed his clothes, went out in the street and danced the poker until he died. That rather struck the ladies as comic, even though it was very sad. Gervaise got up in the middle of the room and did an imitation of Coupeau. Yes, that's just how it was. Can anyone feature a man doing that for hours on end? If they didn't believe, they could go see for themselves. On getting up the next morning, Gervaise promised herself she would not return to the Sahan again. What use would it be? She did not want to go off her head also. However, every ten minutes she fell to musing and became absent-minded. It would be curious, though, if he were still throwing his legs about. When twelve o'clock struck, she could no longer resist. She started off and did not notice how long the walk was. Her brain was so full of her desire to go and the dread of what awaited her. Oh, there was no need for her to ask for news. She heard Coupeau's song the moment she reached the foot of the staircase. Just the same tune, just the same dance. She might have thought herself going up again after having only been down for a minute. The attendant of the day before, who was carrying some jugs of tisane along the corridor, winked his eye as he met her by way of being amiable. "'Still the same, then?' said she. "'Oh, still the same,' he replied without stopping." She entered the room, but she remained near the door because there were some people with Coupeau. The fair, rosy house surgeon was standing up, having given his chair to a bald old gentleman who was decorated and had a pointed face like a weasel. He was no doubt the head doctor, for his glance was as sharp and piercing as a gimlet. All the dealers in sudden death have a glance like that. No, really, it was not a pretty sight and Gervaise, all in a tremble, asked herself why she had returned. To think that the evening before they accused her at the Bosches of exaggerating the picture. Now she saw better how Coupeau set about it, his eyes wide open looking into space, and she would never forget it. She overheard a few words between the house surgeon and the head doctor. The former was giving some details of the night. 
Her husband had talked and thrown himself about. That was what it amounted to. Then the bald-headed old gentleman, who was not very polite, by the way, at length appeared to become aware of her presence. And when the house-surgeon had informed him that she was the patient's wife, he began to question her in the harsh manner of a commissary of the police. Did this man's father drink? Yes, sir, just a little like everyone. He killed himself by falling from a roof one day when he was tipsy. Did his mother drink? Well, sir, like everyone else, you know, a drop here, a drop there. Oh, the family is very respectable. There was a brother who died very young in convulsions. The doctor looked at her with his piercing eye. He resumed in his rough voice. And you? You drink too, don't you? Gervais stammered, protested, and placed her hand upon her heart, as though to take her solemn oath. You drink. Take care. See where drink leads to. One day or other you will die thus. Then she remained close to the wall. The doctor had turned his back to her. He squatted down without trembling himself as to whether his overcoat trailed in the dust of the matting. For a long while he studied Coupeau's trembling, waiting for its reappearance, following it with his glance. That day the legs were going in their turn. The trembling had descended from the hands to the feet, a regular puppet with his strings being pulled, throwing his limbs about, whilst the trunk of his body remained as stiff as a piece of wood. The disease progressed little by little. It was like a musical box beneath the skin. It started off every three or four seconds and rolled along for an instant, then it stopped, then it started off again. Just the same as the little shiver which shakes stray dogs in winter when cold and standing in some doorway for protection. Already the middle of the body and the shoulders quivered like water on the point of boiling. It was a funny demolition all the same, going off wriggling like a girl being tickled. Coupeau, meanwhile, was complaining in a hollow voice. He seemed to suffer a great deal more than the day before. His broken murmurs disclosed all sorts of ailments. Thousands of pins were pricking him. He felt something heavy all about his body. Some cold, wet animal was crawling over his thighs and digging its fangs into his flesh. Then there were other animals, sticking to his shoulders, tearing his back with their claws. "'I'm thirsty! Oh, I'm thirsty!' groaned he continually. The house-surgeon handed him a little lemonade from a small shelf. Coupeau seized the mug in both hands and greedily took a mouthful, spilling half the liquid over himself, but he spat it out at once with furious disgust, exclaiming, "'Damnation! It's brandy!' Then, on a sign from the doctor, the house-surgeon tried to make him drink some water without leaving go of the bottle. This time he swallowed the mouthful, yelling as though he had swallowed fire. It's brandy, damnation, it's brandy. Since the night before, everything he had to drink was brandy. It redoubled his thirst, and he could no longer drink, because everything burned him. They had brought him some broth, but they were evidently trying to poison him, for the broth smelt of vitriol. The bread was sour and mouldy. There was nothing but poison around him. The cell stank of sulphur. He even accused persons of rubbing matches under his nose to infect him. All on a sudden he exclaimed, Oh, the rats! They're the rats now! 
There were black balls that were changing into rats. These filthy animals got fatter and fatter, then they jumped onto the mattress and disappeared. There was also a monkey which came out of the wall and went back into the wall, and which approached so near him each time that he drew back through fear of having his nose bitten off. Suddenly there was another change. The walls were probably cutting capers, for he yelled out, choking with terror and rage. That's it, gee up, shake me, I don't care, gee up, tumble down, yes, ring the bells, you black crows, play the organs to prevent my calling the police. They've put a bomb behind the wall, the lousy scoundrels. I can hear it, it snorts, they're going to blow us up. Fire, damnation, fire, there's a cry of fire, there it blazes, oh, it's getting lighter, lighter, all the sky's burning, red fires, green fires, yellow fires, I help fire. His cries became lost in a rattle. He now only mumbled, disconnected words foaming at the mouth, his chin wet with saliva. The doctor rubbed his nose with his finger, a movement no doubt habitual with him in the presence of serious cases. He turned to the house surgeon and asked him in a low voice, "'And the temperature is still the hundred degrees, is it not?' "'Yes, sir.' The doctor pursed his lips. He continued there another two minutes, his eyes fixed on Coupeau. Then he shrugged his shoulders, adding, The same treatment, broth, milk, lemonade, and the potion of extract of quinine. Do not leave him, and call me if necessary. He went out, and Gervaise followed him, to ask him if there was any hope. But he walked so stiffly along the corridor that she did not dare approach him. She stood rooted there a minute, hesitating whether to return and look at her husband. The time she had already passed had been far from pleasant. As she again heard him calling out that the lemonade smelt of brandy, she hurried away, having had enough of the performance. In the streets the galloping of the horses and the noises of the vehicles made her fancy that all the inmates of Saint Anne were at her heels, and that the doctor had threatened her. Really, she already thought she had the complaint. End of first part of chapter 13 Recording by David Lazarus